Hi, I'm Jerry, and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God and because this program works, I've been sober since January the 1 of 1973. I want to thank you for having me here. I came, uh, other times I've been in this area, once I tried three times to get to Cincinnati and finally made it on the third trip, uh, and I was sober all the time that was happening. Thank the committee for having me, though, and all of you are warm welcome. It's been great. great. I'm glad to be here. I'm, uh, I'm a number of things. I'm a recovering lawyer. Can't hear me? Can you hear that? Or is it this one? All right, I'll get on top of it. Can you do better? All right. I'm a recovering lawyer. <laughs> I haven't sent a bill, cross-examined a witness, done any of that lawyer stuff for eight years. <laughs> I'm also the adult spouse of an al She overreacted to my drinking, and as a result, she has a little more time in the Al-Anon program than I do in the AA program. (laughs) More about that later. I uh, am reminded, based upon Nancy's story, the first story she told, the first joke she told about the uh, fellow, the same guy, I guess, that uh, turned wine into water or whatever. He he was a recipient of that miracle. Uh, uh, His wife was in Al-Anon. And she uh, came home one day and said, we're going to the holy city. And I'm going to take my sponsor, and you are going to pay our way. And he said, yes, dear. He'd been, a, been around Al-Anon's quite a while. I knew there was little opportunity to argue about that. So they went to Jerusalem, and they had a nice time, saw a lot of very interesting things. But... The Al-Anon sponsor had a heart attack and died. And it was his job to take care of this situation. So he met with an official of the Israeli government and said, what should I do? And the man said, well, we can bury her here for $3,000. Or you can take her back to the United States for $10,000. What would you like to do? He thought very carefully. And he said, I guess I'll take her back to the United States. He said, very well. He said, just out of curiosity, why why would you incur that considerable difference in expense? And he said, well, about a couple thousand years ago, a guy died here, and three days later, he arose from the dead. said, I just can't take a chance. <laughs> so you have no illusions. I'm, uh, I'm very fond of Al-Anon, and my wife did a lot to save my life in, uh, in getting involved in, in Al-Anon and practicing its program. I uh, think it's wonderful that we're all here. All different walks. Tammy made a great talk. I enjoyed every moment of it. We come from all different backgrounds, all different situations with a common solution. And that common solution brings us into the recovery from alcoholism so that we can live normally or pretty near normal and uh, have good lives. Alcoholism is a deadly disease, as we all know. We all know people who haven't made it. We're blessed to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a bunch of folks who die of our disease and never, ever get to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we're blessed just to be here. One of the young men stopped me tonight and told me that he had listened to one of my tapes. That's the only person I've ever known of that listened to one of my tapes. Uh, (laughs) And he wanted me to tell you about alcoholism, the way it's been presented to me. I once had a dog. My dog's name was Patches. 
Patches was mostly English bulldog. Patches was a remarkable dog. He had uh, fought a badger, and after a couple hours, he killed the badger. Badger weighed a pound more than he did. He was a hero in the community because everybody in that little rural community where I grew up knew he had done that. He was in our front yard, laying under a shade tree, and there was no problems in his life. He was a hero. He was well-fed. He was well-petted. He was loved by all. And no one in that barnyard had a problem until a boar hog came walking in from a neighbor's place. Big, ugly boar hog. Long, yellow tusk. Ambled in. Bulldogs make strong and oftentimes permanent decisions. <laughs> Patches decided that he would get hold of the hog. And he ran out and he got hold of the hog and he was barking and growling and the hog began to squeal and my dad came running out of the garage, out of the barn and, and uh, got out there and he was kicking hogs and dogs and cussing both of them and I saw my dog was in trouble and I went sailing in the midst of that mess and my mother came out of the kitchen, saw our kid going to this hog dog contest going there. Everybody, everybody on that barnyard had a problem. We all had a problem. We all knew the solution. Patches. Turn loose the hog. Turn him loose. Let him go. He didn't, but after a while the hog drug him up beside the, the barn and, and he knocked him off. But he got cut as he came off. He got a big gash on his shoulder and neck and uh, Dad was able to get hold of him and then pick that old bulldog up and he was snapping and snarling and fighting and wanting to get that hog. Dad took him over to a water hydrant and poured water on him and sent me to the barn to get some tar to put on his neck to stop the bleeding and we got his blood stopped. We got him cooled off. We sat down and we turned him loose and you know, it's over. He went right back and got hold of that hog again. And it's the same deal. There was barking and squealing and kicking and cussing. And mothers trying to save their kids. And everybody had a problem. Everybody had a problem. Everybody knew the solution again. Hog knew it. We knew it. Everybody knew it. Patches, turn loose the damned hog. Turn him loose. So dad went in and got him again. This time he recognized that Patches was not himself. The psychiatrist among us would say that his emotional nature was in charge of his intellect. He was crazy as hell. That's what he was. <laughs> so dad committed him to the water hydrant. He got a chain and chained him to the water hydrant. I was appointed his counselor. And I was, gave the job of cooling him off and bringing him back to sanity. And I sat and visited with him. While dad got in the pickup and drove the hog off. And removed the temptation from his life. And he uh, got quiet. I asked him deep penetrating, penetrating questions, like, did you ever have a good day getting hold of hogs? Does your family appreciate it when you get hold of hogs? How do other dogs look at you when you're getting hold of a hog? In about, I don't know, an hour, I, didn't, I had cured him. He was no longer pulling on the chain. He was laying on the ground. His tongue was out, that little, had that little grin on his face, you know. He was loose and easy, it was a low tail, what there was of it was going back and forth. And so I went to see my dad, the warden, and said, Dad, Patches is okay, we can turn him loose. And Dad said, I'll check him out, I've had a little trouble with him today. So he walked around him and he was okay. And he said, all right, turn him loose. So we took the chain off of it. He had to go two miles to find the hog, but he got him one more time. <laughs> Is there anything about that story that reminds you of your life? <laughs> Can you identify with any of the players? I started out as the first hoganon in West Texas. But later on, I came to identify a little more with the bulldog. It wasn't hogs, actually. It wasn't hogs at all. The next month, he uh, tried to catch hold of a cattle truck. He just caught one cattle truck. We have a lot of people that catch cattle trucks. The disease of alcoholism 
sends us back again and again and again to places where we can't go, fighting something we have no power over, and the joy goes out of our life. We don't recognize that it's even was ever any better. We just keep drinking. And a lot of us catch a cow truck. AA doesn't have anything to help people give up the, the need to try to catch over the cattle truck or the, or the bulldog. But what it does, it gives you a way to live so that you don't have to do that sort of thing. It changes our perspective on life. It works on the way we think. It gives us new values so that we move through life in a different kind of world. It's the same things happening. Good, bad things happen to us. Death. All kinds, lose jobs, all kinds of things happen, but we now have a way on which we can live a comfortable and happy life, no matter what's going on. My life started out in West Texas, and I was a, wasn't even close to being an alcoholic. There was no alcohol in my family. I was born after 1930, wherever, 1930, and I didn't smoke any, any weed either. Uh, <laughs> shows how dumb we were. Uh, I uh, did drink a little after about got to be about 16. I, I, I did pretty good until I was about 10 years old, and World War II came along, and all the guys that were healthy and could run a tractor went off to the damn war. And that left 10-year-old kids driving tractors and doing men's work. And my dad was not an easy guy to work for. He, he demanded pretty damn near perfection. And I felt like I had a lot of responsibility. And then, a little later, I discovered irresponsibility. Now, that's a good cure for responsibility. <laughs> I mean, drive fast, raise hell, do whatever. Let everybody know you're not trying to make the honor roll. Just go and do it. But then you've got to snap back and be responsible again for a while. That's the way I live my life. Went to college, hadn't had a drink. Oh, maybe one beer somewhere. But I went to college and I was playing basketball, trying to play basketball, and they were working hard, working hard. I mean, I was responsible to the team. I had to make that team, I thought. And then I went to a fraternity party, and they served a commodity that kicked into irresponsibility like nothing you have ever seen in your life. It was beer. And I just loved what happened when I drank beer. And I paid the price. I was sick as a dog. I got in trouble. But I was always willing to pay the price because I liked getting drunk. I found it wasn't beer. It could be anything. I, any kind of alcohol was good to me. And I could get positively excited about getting drunk a week from tonight. Man. We're going we're gonna to pool our money, get somebody to buy us some booze, put some gas in somebody's car, all of us get in there and take off. And there's no telling where we'll be the next morning. Our most common question was, where are we? <laughs> Nobody knew for sure. What did we do? That was another group discussion. You remember that? Oh, and then you did. I didn't do that, did I? Yes, you did. But I was always the guy, sick as we were, drinking stale beer, whatever it happened to be. I was always the guy who said, let's... Let's do it again. Let's do it again. I was never going to give that up. I like that thing. But I had that responsible side as well. I ultimately went to the Navy and got married and had a kid and wound up going through law school. And always the responsible side would drive me for a while, and then the irresponsible side would take over, and I would drink and, and uh, take a little vacation from responsibility. And I, uh, I did pretty well with that. I, uh, I was doing okay. I was moving through my law firm at uh, a reasonable pace and uh, satisfying clients. Uh, I was always very competitive. Uh, I went to work in the law firm and thought I might like to be an office lawyer, but you can't win a will. You can't win a deed. I had to get in the pit and try those lawsuits, you know, so that's, that's where I went. And I, and I liked it. I liked it. I liked trial lawyers. We could drink and raise hell together and go back and try another lawsuit and try to cut each other's throats and all that stuff. So I, uh, I was doing, I thought, reasonably well. Wasn't having a lot of fun. Wasn't finding any meaning in my life. And I decided it was because, I don't know, maybe it was 
maybe it was because I was representing a bunch of big corporations and things like that. Maybe I ought to do something that was, you know, meaningful, artistic. So I took some art lessons. Right away I went to abstract art because I couldn't draw anything that you'd recognize as a... (laughs) And then I switched to sculpting. I bought me a welder. And I would put these pieces of metal together in beautiful, exotic shapes. I don't know who screwed with them after I quit working on them at night, but the next morning they didn't look as good as they did the night before. And I could never remember which piece of metal was hot. But I solved that problem. You just, you grab the hot metal and immediately you know you picked up the wrong one. And I had a big glass and I'd fill it full of ice and whiskey. And you reach in and you get all the ice in the hand that's burnt and you drink the whiskey and you know, in a few minutes you go right on. No problem, no problem. My idyllic life that I'm describing to you began to go awry. My wife just couldn't leave alcohol alone. Not drink it. She wanted to talk about it all the time. (laughs) She sent off and got tests for me to take. And I'm pretty, you know, I'm not dumb. I know how to pass the damn test. But the tests were written by prohibitionists or somebody. Nobody, somebody didn't want you to drink when they gave you that test. Did you ever drink alone? Why, hell yes, I drank alone. I didn't have anybody to drink with me. I, for a while, I got classified as a heavy drinker. And then my wife did something that, without my permission, absolutely without my knowledge, jeopardized our home, my profession. She started going to some meetings. <laughs> and I had to discover this, asking one of my children one night, where's your mother? I want her right here, right now. Where's your mother? And my daughter said, I, I don't know, Daddy. I think she may be at one of those meetings. And I said, what meeting is that? And she said, well, Daddy, uh, I don't know for sure. They're family meetings. And I said, uh, okay, and I began to think. Billy and I, my wife, had decided that we would try our marriage for six more months. If it didn't get any better, we'd just get a divorce. And it wasn't getting any better. And it occurred to me that if, under those circumstances, if my wife was going to family meetings, I probably needed a representative at those meetings. So when she came in, I began to cross-examine her. My wife is easily the best witness that I've ever encountered. She's tough as hell. She never lies, but getting information from her sometimes is really very difficult. She came in and I said, where have you been? Whoa. I didn't say it quite that loud. Are we all right? Can y'all hear now? What happened? It's kind of scary. (laughs) I said, where have you been? She said, out. Right there. I knew what kind of evening we were going to have. Out where? To Preston Center. Who did you see there? Some friends. Who were they? You wouldn't know them. What did you do? Oh, we just shared our experience, strength, and hope. (laughs) And so I began to close the doors and get closer and closer until I got this word, word that I had never heard in my life. Al-Anon. Al-Anon. What would be an (laughs) Al-Anon? Things had gotten a little heated by this point, and I didn't want to appear ignorant. So I made my best guess. I thought probably Al-Anon was an aluminum kitchen utensil of some kind. I thought, my God, she's finally going to go to work. 
she uh, corrected me right away on that. And uh, then I couldn't shut her up. She, all she wanted to do was talk about Al alone. What a wonderful organization it was. How wonderful and loving the people were. How they would pay $500 a seat if they knew just how good it was in Al-Anon. How anyone could go to Al-Anon if they had a friend or family member who had a problem with alcohol. Ding. I'm the entryway to Al-Anon, and I haven't even been consulted. <laughs> I've been tried and convicted of alcoholism without ever getting to voice... Tell why, my God. If you had a wife like I did, you'd drink too. Job like I had, you'd drink too. I had lots of reasons to drink. It scared the hell out of me that my wife could be going to a public meeting where she could see, be seen by judges and other lawyers and their wives and witnesses and clients and their wives. And I could think of thousands of people in Dallas, Texas, who just would see Billy in one of those meetings and immediately know she thinks Jerry is an alcoholic. And I've just been made partner in the largest law firm in Dallas, Texas. They've got two alcoholics already. <laughs> I am under the impression that they think that is a full complement of alcoholics in that law firm. <laughs> They say that they're going to get rid of those two just as quick as they can. They are senior, senior partners in that law firm. I'm a very junior lawyer in that partner. And I sat Billy down there and I said, now listen carefully, Billy. We've got to have a serious talk. I had sobered up almost instantly when she told me about this. <laughs> I said, have you noticed that no one brings money to this house except me? She said, yeah, I know that. I said, do you know that we owe money on the house, the car, cars, the furniture? We owe a little bit of money on damn near everything. Yeah, she said, yeah, that's right. I said, do you know what happens when you stop paying on those bills? No, she said, what happens? I said, they come and get the stuff. And when they find out at that law firm downtown, and they will find out, that you have been going to Al-Anon meetings because you think I'm an alcoholic, <laughs> they're going to fire me that day. The money stops, they come and get all this stuff, and you and I and our children are standing naked in the streets of Dallas in the middle of the damn land. <laughs> Do you understand what kind of situation you have created here? She said, Jerry, I, I kind of think I need to go to Al-Anon. I said, Billy, you must not go to Al-Anon anymore. She said, Jerry, I'm going to go. And I said, Billy, please do not go to any more meetings. She said, Jerry, I'm going to go. And I said something loving like, you know, well, if you go to another one, I'll kill you. This sure as hell. <laughs> And she kept going and I didn't kill her. But she drove me crazy. She drove me crazy. Every day I went to work, I thought, is today the day they're going to call me in and say, we understand your wife has been going to Al-Anon because she thinks you're an alcoholic. We've had a couple of reports about your drinking. Goodbye. I'd get through that day and I'd get in my car and start home and I'd think, well, I made it through another day. Uh, I got to get her out of that damn Al-Anon. And I tried everything to get her out of it. I begged her. I threatened her. I tried to trick her. Uh, finally, I just decided I would make it so damned uncomfortable for her to go to Al-Anon that she'd quit. And the way I was going to do that was pick fights. Now, I would decide in advance, tonight we're going to have a fight. You may not think that is very fair, but that's the way I operated. And the way you do that is you decide what the subject of the fight is going to be about. You go into close proximity of the person you're going to fight with, and you begin to get all the information that's helpful to you from them before they know the fight has started. <laughs> this night I went in, and I went over. She was at the stove, and I smelled the cooking. I said, oh, dinner smells good. She said, thank you. Gave her a little kiss on the cheek. She said, have you had a nice day? She said, yeah, it's been okay. 
I said, kids have a good day? Oh, yeah, they seem to have a good day. How about the dog? Is the dog doing all right today? Oh, yeah, dog's fine, dog's fine. I said, Billy, I've been thinking. I've been thinking. You think I'm an alcoholic. And she said, she said, I don't know whether you are or not. I said, well, that's damn funny. You've been calling me an alcoholic for several years now. And she said, yes, but I was wrong. It's really difficult to get a fight started when they're acting like this, I'll tell you that. She said, it doesn't matter what I think. It does not matter what I think at all. It doesn't matter what your parents think, what your partners think, what the children think. It matters only what you think. Because if you don't think you've got a problem with alcohol, you'll never do a damn thing about it. And I made a very, very basic mistake for a trial lawyer. You never ask a question in the middle of a heated controversy when you do not know the answer. <laughs> but I was off guard and I was off balance and I said, well, if I wanted to find out if I was an alcoholic, how would I do it? <laughs> and the jaws of the Alamon trap closed just like that. And the bad thing was, I really wanted to know the answer. But I didn't want her to know I wanted to know the answer. She said, well, you could quit drinking entirely. I said, she said, I don't think you want to do that. And I said, damn right, I don't want to do that. And she said, I read a book by Marty Mann called The Primer on Alcoholism. And she says that if you can drink two drinks a day, every day, no more, no less, for six months, and you never exceed that limit, you're probably not an alcoholic. And I said, let me, let me understand this now. <laughs> You've been trying to get me to quit drinking for years, and now do you want me to drink another six months? And she said, yeah. Yeah, that'd be fine. And I realized I was dealing with a seriously disturbed woman, and I... <laughs> I'd already sent her to the psychiatrist because she overreacted to alcohol, you know, and now she's back into this stuff, and I know I'm, this is not going my way. And I said, that's the dumbest test I ever heard of in my life, and I got out of it. I had to break that off and go sit in my green chair and think about this thing. And I realized that I was going to lose my damn job, probably my family, if she kept going to those meetings. Sooner or later, somebody was going to tell on me. And I uh, realized, too, that somebody was going to have to be responsible here. She was being irresponsible in what she was doing, and somebody was going to have to try to save this damn family, and it looked like it was going to have to be me. <laughs> so, having spent a week or two drinking and thinking about this, I decided that I would take the damn test. <laughs> I'd just take the damn test. Now, I didn't tell anyone that I was taking the test. I, uh, matter of fact, I had to change the test a little bit. <laughs> I had a pretty good sized glass. And I figured what I'm going to do is I'm going to drink two martinis before dinner. And then I'm going to eat. And then I'm going to have a big brandy with a little splash of soda in it. And then I'm going to switch to coffee for the rest of the evening. And no one who isn't a prohibitionist could fault you for drinking like that. That's totally reasonable drinking. So I started taking the test. And this is where my recovery began. I became responsible for my drinking. I had never in my life thought about how much I drank or how much I should drink. I just wondered sometimes why I drank as much as I did, but I didn't do anything about it. And what happened was I'd start, drink, start this little test and I'd have one of those martinis, and the cares of the day would begin to kind of slide off my shoulders, and the music would start. And out of the phone booth would step the man with the big ass on his chest. And I'd have the record get down to the bottom of that second one, and you'd think, you know, that's about all the martinis today. And then the thought would come. 
What are you doing? What are you doing? Are you over 21? Are you a man? Who supports this bunch of people around here? Who fights those damn lawyers all day long and those idiot judges that we got? Tries to convince those dumbass jurors that are in the box there. You know, who does that? I do. Are you going to let a bunch of little old ladies from tennis shoes tell you how to drink whiskey? The answer was, hell no. Hell no. And I'd go to the bar and I'd drink the bottle. Or I'd go to the bar and I'd think it's been a bad day. It's been a bad day. Hmm, I ain't going to be no damn test today. No. <laughs> and I'd drink the bottle. Sometimes I could forget the damn test. But my wife had a sponsor, much like that lady that went to Jerusalem. <laughs> and her sponsor told her when she awakened in the morning, the very first thought she must have and is about her blessing. And she must say aloud and firmly, this is the day the Lord has made. I shall rejoice and be glad in it. Now, when you hear that and you've had a quart of whiskey the night before, <laughs> you're reasonably sure you're not going to do any rejoicing today. Well, I gave the test a good shot. I ran it for about a year and a half. Never passed it one time, not one damn time. At the end of that time, it round up on uh, December 31st of 1972. At that point in time, about all I thought about was drinking. Wishing I had a drink, wishing I didn't have to drink. Wondering what the hell was wrong with me. Why couldn't I pass that simple, damn little test? Just three drinks a day. Anybody, any grown man ought to be able to do that. What's wrong with me? On December 20, 30, 31st, 1972, I had only one objective for the day. I was to stay sober enough to go out and have dinner with some friends. And we were going to return to my house because it was difficult to get me back in my house sometimes after I had had drinks out. And we were going to bring in the new year. It would be nice and appropriate if I could stay on my feet and functioning until midnight. That was not an absolute requirement, but it would have been nice. <laughs> so I started out that morning. I'm pacing myself very carefully. I'm watching how much I drink. And I did need a drink to start the day off. I mean, it was going to be a holiday, a festive occasion. Wouldn't you want to have a drink? And I had a little nip along through the day. And then I woke up in my green chair. And I looked out the window, and it was pitch black. I looked over, and Billy was sitting in her chair reading a little book. They have lots of little books they read. <laughs> and I said, Billy, shouldn't we be getting dressed to go to dinner? She said, ah, oh, Jerry, don't you know what time it is? And I looked at the clock, and it was about 10, 15. I had uh, passed out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I wasn't mad at anybody. I didn't have any pressure on me. I didn't have an excuse in the world for getting drunk that day and passing out. I knew that she had called those people and said, we can't go to dinner. I also knew she had to say, and you can't come over here either. And probably since she was an Al-Anon for a while, she said, because Jerry's passed out in his chair. That's probably what she said. <laughs> and I was sick of me. I was sick of what I was and what I wasn't. And I got up and went to the bar, and I mixed myself a big drink because I wanted oblivion. I wanted out. And it worked. knocked me out. And I got up on January the 1st of 1973 to the sorriest day I have ever spent. I sat on the edge of the bed and thought, you know, here we are, brand new year. What are you going to do this year, Jerry? What are you going to do? You've tried everything you can to, to uh, get your wife out of all the to drink reasonably. You can't even decide you're going to drink three drinks a day and just drink three. What are you going to do this year? What are your options? I couldn't think of but one that I hadn't tried, and that was to try to stop drinking. And that day it didn't seem like such a bad idea. I uh, 
showered and went out to the kitchen where Billy was fixing breakfast or whatever she was doing, and I said, well, I'm real sorry about last night. She was not impressed with my <laughs> little, little amend. And then I said, well, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I've been thinking, and I'm going to try to quit drinking. And she was impressed. She ran over to the bookcase and just happened to have a copy of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> and the little 24-hour day book. And she came trotting over to me with those and said, would you like for me to have someone from Alcoholics Anonymous come over? And gave me the books, and I threw the books against the wall and said, hell no. I got myself in this deal, and if by God anybody's going to get me out, it's going to be me. You keep them damn day A's and that literature you've been leaving around the house and those dogs and the kids and everybody the hell away from me because this ain't going to be pretty. <laughs> and I don't know whether I can do it at all or not. And she said something in Alamon. They said like, you got it, and walked off. And I had it. I didn't know I had had it, but I had had it. When you stop doing something that's harmful to you, you'd think you'd begin to get better, wouldn't you? Didn't happen in my house. My God, I was sick, shaking, sweating. It was January, cold, and I'm sweating like the devil, you know, and I'm quick. <laughs> and I'm in the wrong place all the time. If I'm outside, I ought to be inside. If I'm inside, I ought to be laying down. If I'm laying down, I ought to be outside walking around. I'm just moving and grooving, you know. It's not going well. My stomach is sending signals to my brain and says, hey, you're forgetting something. Send it up. Send it up. So I lasted two days. And I decided I'd sneak read one of those books that she left in the kitchen. So I went in there, and I wished I'd read conference-approved literature, but I just didn't have time. I, just, I didn't want her to catch me reading that stuff at all. So I grabbed that little 24-hour-a-day book that she had left there, and I opened it up and saw there was a date there, and that keen alcoholic mind, I went to that page, and it said, alcohol has ruined your life. And I said, yes, yes, yes. It said, well, this year we're going to give our drinking problem to God and leave it there. I cannot tell you how disappointed I was in that advice. <laughs> how do you give something to somebody you can't find? I've been looking for God ever since I was a little, little bitty kid. I've asked to see a burning bush. I've wanted to walk on water. I heard the preachers talk about all those things, and I wanted it to happen. I even went to the front some, and they put their hands on me, blessed me, and everybody gathered around me and said, oh, Jerry, this is wonderful. Don't you feel different? And I did, because not a damn thing had happened to me like I wanted it to happen. Now, I'm not knocking people who have conversion experiences, because some people do. But they don't do it demanding that God demonstrate himself on their terms. And that's what I had been doing all my life. I don't know why I did what I did next. But I threw that little book out in the middle of the table and said, God, if you're there... I'm going to give this drinking problem to you. And if you take it, I may do some more business with you. <laughs> Sincere prayer. <laughs> Nothing happened. I wanted to drink just as bad as I did before I said the prayer. I got through that day, but the next morning, something had happened. I knew something that I had not known before. I knew that I had to have some help. I wasn't going to make it through that day unless I had some help. And I needed some help with skin on it. I needed some people. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous and got the most unsympathetic woman on the telephone line the world has ever seen. I told her my terrible problem, that I was having a little problem quitting drinking. And she said, are you going to AA meetings? And I said, no. She said, you need to go to an AA meeting every day. I said, that's impossible. I'm a very busy, relatively important lawyer, and I don't have time to go to some kind of little meeting every day. And she said, well, what have you been doing in the evening? I said, I've been drinking. 
She said, well, you're going to quit that, so you're going to have a lot more time, aren't you? Okay, okay, I need to go to meetings. So we negotiate where I'm going to go to meetings. And I finally get a little home group that's called the Town and Country Group. Kind of woodsy sounding, you know. I figured they went to meetings in station wagons. And She asked me what kind of meeting I'd want, and I said I'd like to have one, you know, with college graduates. Uh, <laughs> close to a country club, so I could fake, you know, where are you, where are you going down that street? I'm going to the country club. You know. She said, we ain't got none of them, so we wound up with this one. So I, I went to that little meeting, and these guys that were there, there were eight of them, I believe, they had years of sobriety. They couldn't possibly have had a drinking problem like I was having and stayed sober that long. Their baby had a year and a half. I couldn't think two weeks, a year and a half, though, that's my God. But I went and listened to them and got out of there, and hung on for another day, and then a guy came in. The message of Alcoholics Anonymous is transmitted from a person who has recovered to one who has the need of recovery. I think you could preach about it forever. I think I can talk to you about it till I'm going to turn blue in the face, but until you encounter someone you can identify with and look at that person and say, he's got the same kind of deal I got, and he knows how to get out of this mess, and I think I'll go with him. That's what happened to me. This guy, David, walked in. He had literature sticking out of every pocket. God, he was smart. He just got out of a treatment center. I couldn't possibly go to a treatment center because I was a big-time lawyer, you know. They'd find out, and it'd be just as bad if they found out I was an AA as if they found out my wife thought I was an alcoholic. Would not work. So I, uh, when he left the meeting, I followed him outside. I said, David... We were both quick. We sat there and looked at each other. <laughs> what do you think of this AA and A thing? And he said, you mean this little group? Oh, he said, this is not for us. He said, these are nice people, but these people are just kind of maintaining sobriety. They just get together once a week. He said, we're going to have to get in the middle of this thing. We're going to have to change the way we think. Alcoholism centers in the mind. And we've got to learn a new way to think and a new way to react to, to, to life. And to do that, we're going to have to do the steps, whatever that meant. We're going to have to do the steps. We're going to have to have sponsors. We're going to have to clean ashtrays, whatever good that does. And we're going to have to do a lot of stuff, and we're going to need to go every day. It sounded a lot better coming from David than it had over the telephone from somebody I didn't know. And I said, where are we going to go? He said, well, I heard, about, I heard about this meeting. Just got into town last week. There's another one out way out north that's just getting started. And he told me where it was. And I knew the general area, and I didn't know anybody in that area. And he said, will you go with me? And I said, well, <clears throat> I'll consider it. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'm going to be there tomorrow night. Come if you can. And he left. So the next day I got up and I got in my car and I went to that area and I found the address. First time I went by it, I went by about 65 miles an hour and just glanced at it. I'm casing it just like I'm going to rob the damn place. You know. It's upstairs over a convenience store and I whip in the convenience store on the way back and get out to buy a Slurpee or whatever they sold in those places. And I look up, it's on the second floor, see if there are you know, cameras or, or any kind of videos or spies watching me on the street, and didn't see anybody. And I looked again when I came out, there was nobody there, and I got in my car, and I noticed there's a driveway along the side of the building, and I drove down the driveway and got in the back of the place, and there it was. There were six parking places in the alley, and you could climb the fire escape and go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the way you got me. I came to you full of resistance, full of denial, full of rationalization, full of justification. I didn't need what you had. I didn't like what you did. You were a sick bunch. <laughs> My God, a guy would stand up at the podium and tell some terrible story. Wrecked homes, wrecked cars, in incarceration. My God, just all kinds of things. And every time they told somebody, everybody just laughed like hell. <laughs> 
Well, like I said, I'm competitive, and I got thinking, well, you know, I did a couple of things that were kind of cute. I, I might tell them. And I told them, and they, they put their arms around me and said, look here, Jerry's beginning to open up. He's beginning to be himself. They hadn't asked me what kind of car I drove, what kind of house I lived in, whether I had a swimming pool, what kind of job I had. They didn't seem to give a damn about any of those important things. They asked me things like, do you have a sponsor? What step are you working on? What do you think about God as you understand him? Those kind of things. And they were a different kind of people. They had different values than I had encountered in my world for quite some time. And I was attracted to that. It's almost like going back to that little farm town in West Texas where everybody knew everybody, everybody cared about everybody else, tried to help each other, good neighbors, kindness, tolerance, acceptance. And I was attracted to do what they did. A lot of it I didn't, I did because it was just kind of popular, you know. I, well, it wasn't all popular, like they quote the big book all the time. And I got to wondering, are they telling me the truth, what that book says? You can't be too careful. They may, mis- may, be, may be misleading you. Buy the damn book and read it. So I read it very carefully. So when they got off line a little bit, I could correct them about what was wrong. <laughs> then I, uh, I began to notice something that was happening in Alcoholics Anonymous. I noticed that there were some people that came in who could not possibly get sober. You could just tell when they walked through the door, this one is not going to make it. There's no need to take a photograph of him before because there ain't going to be no after. <laughs> he has no teeth. He's got a rusty zipper. <laughs> he says he's a perfectionist. <laughs> and I began to watch these turkeys, and, and by gosh, you know what happened? They got teeth. They got a clean pair of pants. They shaved. They began to make sense. And from that drunken sot emerged a human being. I was having a lot of trouble with the God thing. I didn't believe what I had heard in churches a lot. I thought of God as somebody on a cloud way, way off somewhere who kept score, zapped you when you're wrong, all that stuff. I didn't believe in that God. I just didn't believe in that God. But I said, I have to deal with this God as I understand him. Repeatedly through the steps, you could see it was shot full of that God thing. So I had to define God as I understood God. And it had to be real. I couldn't fake it. I tried over and over with preachers and priests and all kinds of folks to, to get faith. I said, how do you believe? And they said, have faith. And I would try to have faith. I'd sit in a chair and say, I'm going to have faith. <clears throat> I didn't have any. But they told me to form my conception of God as best I could. And what I define God as is whatever works in Alcoholics Anonymous. I began to see people recover. I began to sit in audiences like this and I began to feel something that was real and present. And I knew that there was a power bigger than we were because over and over everybody said they couldn't do it by themselves. And that became God to me. My God's not a lot bigger than that today. I've never had any more direct experience, I don't believe, with the power greater than myself than I have found in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've seen millions, of, not millions, but I've seen a lot of people recover. I've seen people get well. I've seen people live through terrible situations. And there's a power there that we can tap into. I didn't believe a lot of this stuff. They told me they didn't care whether I believed it or not. To take the action described in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you will come to believe, and you will experience the power. You won't have to rely on anybody else's experience. You can rely upon your own. And that's happened to me. I've had some great experiences. My wife and I celebrated 50 years of marriage last October.
I've had a son who came to Alcoholics Anonymous and got sober, and he's still sober. He's not real active in AA, but he's sober. I've got a daughter who brings her children 200 miles to hear me make an AA talk. That's a new experience. The youngest one's five, calls me Pop-Pop. After the talk, he said, Pop-Pop, I ain't going to drink none of that alcohol makes bad things happen to you. <laughs> I've had a wonderful legal experience. My, my career was a good one. I received a lot of honors and a lot of acclaim that probably I didn't deserve, but uh, I had to try to learn to practice law in a new way after I got here. I got to try to be kind and tolerant and truthful and honest and found it works just fine, just fine. I've had some really pretty remarkable things happen to me. One of them happened when I was about three or four months sober. My wife and I were trying to put a marriage back together, and she heard about this conference out in Band, Texas, way out in East Texas. And it was Baptist, a Baptist conference, and I'm a Methodist, if I'm anything, so I was not real enthusiastic about going, but I had committed to go to any lengths, and so we went to this conference. There were about ten couples there. And we had dinner, and we went in this little room and sat down on the floor, and this Baptist minister got up and said, well, let's get this thing started off right. Let's go around the room, and everybody tell me and tell everybody else what God's doing in your life today. That's a testimonial, for those of you who don't know. Methodists don't do testimonials. Baptists do testimonials. I'm not going to give a testimonial. I will leave if my wife would go with me, but she doesn't look like she's going anywhere at all. And I'm going to have to crawl out of there by myself. And I, somebody will pass. Somebody will say, I, excuse me, I pass. I, so I began to listen to these civilians. They were all civilians. And they had piddly little problems. I mean, little tiny problems. Couldn't drive Central Expressway without God. Why, hell, I've driven Central Expressway drunk recruiter Brown. You know? <laughs> Couldn't raise their kids without God. I've done a pretty good job raising my kids. They're doing well, honor roll, all that stuff. No God. And then I thought, you know, I've been sober three months. I've been sober three months. I'm an alcoholic. I can tell because I've listened to people who say they're alcoholics, and I'm just as, I drink, I can't handle alcohol a bit better than they can. I guess God's done that for me. I guess this whatever works in AA has done that for me. You know, if I, if I told the Baptist about that, I'd blow the socks off the Baptist. <laughs> a real alcoholic in their midst who hadn't had a drink for three months, <laughs> they'd want to counsel with me after the meeting was over. That's what they'd want to do. And I looked carefully around the room, and I didn't see anybody that I even thought I might have ever seen before, and I thought, well, hell. I'll just tell him. I'll just tell him. Now, I didn't hear anything for a while because I was preparing my speech. I, uh, <laughs> but then an old boy got up, a big old boy, 6'4", 250 pounds, got calluses on the back of his hands where they drug the ground, you know, he was one of those guys. <laughs> and he got up and he began to bawl and squall and tears rolled down his cheeks, blubber, I couldn't make any sense out of what he was saying at all. I've never been so embarrassed by a grown man about, you know, it was pathetic. I wanted him to sit down. He was ruining all of our images, all the men in the world. Finally, he sat down. And the little lady next to me got up. Slender, pretty lady. Gray eyes like my mother had. She looked around the room and she said, I couldn't do it with that guy. I just couldn't do it without God. He sustains me. Every day, he sustains me. And the nicest thing about God, she said, is that God will always be there and be there for everyone. My children are only two or three years old, and I won't be able to see this, but someone will bring God to them and give them a chance to, uh, to find him. And I began to realize that I was listening to a 32-year-old woman who had children two and three years old who was dying. She had bad cancer. 
she had a disease, an incurable one. I identified it. Mine was called alcoholism. She said, you've seen my husband. He's just a wreck. But he will find someone somewhere to help him raise those kids, and they'll have a good life, even though I'm not there. And I had a big thought. I had a great big thought. And the thought was, you know, you've been sitting around here sucking your thumb, feeling sorry for yourself because you can't drink anymore. You've been feeling sorry for yourself because you've got to go to those meetings with those wonderful people. God, if she had your solution to go to those meetings, associate with those people, go anywhere and do anything in life that you want to do except not drink whiskey. The doctor said, I'm going to give you that solution, but I'm going to have to take off both of your legs right now. She had said, take them off. Take them off. And the big thought kicked in, ain't you got it tough, cowboy? Ain't you got it tough? That was a, I didn't make a talk that night. I don't even know how I got out of that room. But I had had a massive switch from an unreal thought to reality. And it knocked me to my knees, figuratively. I wound up out in the woods, walking around crying, just made that old boy look like he was a real he-man. <laughs> I'm bubbling and blowing my nose and grateful. Grateful to the bone. I don't have to go that way. I've got a solution. That's the last day I've ever felt sorry for myself for being an alcoholic. And I'm not sorry for you either. I'm not sorry for you either. We got a good way. We got a good way and you've been given a good way. You've got an obligation to pass it on. You're the only people who can. There are millions dying every day and we're sitting on our duffs and not doing enough. We need to go and do and be. We need not have any anonymity. I was a year sober, 11 months sober. I finally decided that they were going to wait and fire me at the annual partners meeting. Surely somebody had called because they'd been taking me around to little meetings around Dallas and I was making AA talks and I'd scan the office to the room audience to see if there's anybody there that knew me or should know me. Or, but I knew that work paranoia took over. They know. And they're going to fire me today or the day that we have the partners meeting. And so I decided I'm relatively aggressive. I decided, hell with that, I'll take, it, take the fight to them. And I picked out five of the meanest ones that I could think of, and I went to see them and tell them, by God, what was happening. Went to the meanest, the head, head man first. Told him I need to talk to him, and he is not a warm and cuddly guy. No fuzzies here. <laughs> Knocked on his door, come in. Uh, Sir, I need to talk to you. What about well, what it is is that, uh, go ahead, what do, you, what do you got? Well, uh, sir, I, what it is is I'm an alcoholic, and I've been sober for 11 months, and I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not telling you this because it's good or bad, I'm just telling you because you need to know. If you see me drinking again, some of our clients are in trouble, and if you know anybody that's got this problem, I might know a way to help them. And I waited, I knew he'd react instantly, and he did. He said, I am delighted. My God, we wondered what was wrong with you. <laughs> said, have you noticed we started sending you business again? And I said, yeah, I have, I have been busy. Yes, I've noticed that. He said, hell, we need you, Jerry. He said, you're, you've got a lot of talent and you've got a lot of ability to try lawsuits and we need you. And I am delighted that you're in Alcoholics Anonymous because that's where you are if you've got that kind of problem. It's where you belong. He said, it's a great organization. He said, I don't know that much about it, but I, I heard you'd even quit drinking. But I'm not impressed with people who get on the water wagon. They get off and push after a little while. <laughs> and he sat there and talked about what my opportunities were for about a half hour, and they were all good. When I walked out of that office, I knew no fear. I could whip King Kong left-handed, by God. <laughs> I went to those other four guys and told them exactly how it was, and I didn't care whether they liked it or not, because the boss is on my side. <laughs> that ended my anonymity. I've never worried another day about it. I've been free. What are you going to do to me? I'm sober. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell the jury about it. I'll eat your lunch, by God, when you do. <laughs> Thank you.
we all have a tremendous obligation. One of the great women in our, not our fellowship, but in our program is Lois, Bill's wife. I heard this story years before I finally got confirmation about it, and I told it many times because I just liked it. Lois was on her deathbed in New York. The word was out that she wasn't going to make it this time. And the general manager of Alcoholics Anonymous heard about her plight, and he went to see her, and she was in intensive care. He thought somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous ought to go and thank her for what she had done for us. And he uh, went there, and he talked to her for a while. She had tubes down her throat. She couldn't speak. She had a little pad she wrote a few things on. And he talked to her for a few minutes, and he said, Lois, the real reason I came here today is to thank you on behalf of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous for helping save our lives. And she wrote, not me, God. He said, oh, you got me, Lois. Of course, that's right. I knew that. I knew that. I knew that. And he said, but Lois, you were the messenger. She wrote again, and so are you. And so are you. Thank you for having me.